Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hi, this is Perry Marshall. I'm here with Karen Baker, and she has written a book called The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants. And this is a book about plant and animal sounds and sensory experiences and acoustics. And she talks about things that probably nobody has ever talked to you about before, that there is a vast auditory world of not only cats and dogs and people, but insects and plant roots and leaves and whales and aquatic creatures and my friend Howie Jacobson turned me on to this book. He said, Perry, you, you really ought to take a look at this. And I said, okay. And here we are a few months later, and we're talking about this book. So Karen, welcome. Thank you for having me. Give us the tip of the iceberg. Like, What do people not even know that they don't know to even ask or think about of this hidden world of sound across the tree of life. And like, we're, we're not the only ones. Where do you even start? I think, okay, you could start with a thought experiment. Imagine if you could hear beyond human hearing range, which is quite narrow. If you could hear up into the high ultrasound above our hearing range, that's the realm of, you know, bats and moths and mice, dolphins, <laughs> you'd hear an incredible variety of sounds that animals use to communicate ecological information, to echolocate biosonar, you know, as evolved as our finest military devices. Some creatures are so dependent on sound, particularly those that live underwater, that they essentially see the world through sound. Their sense of, uh, what we think of as sense of sight is primarily exercised through sound. Now at the other end of our hearing range, very deep, deep below our, our, the lower limit of our hearing range is the realm of the infrasound. Very deep, long, low sounds. They're so powerful they can pass through soil, through stone, through walls. Those sounds, that's the realm of elephants and whales and tigers. Mm -hmm. The planet itself makes infrasound. So mm -hmm. volcanoes, thunderstorms, Storms. If you could really hear in this hearing range, you could hear maybe a hydrothermal vent. It sounds a bit like a gong or a strange didgeridoo. Now, so all of this sound is around us all the time, but because humans have a very narrow hearing range, we don't hear it. But in nature, essentially silence is an illusion. And digital tech has in the past few years enabled us, like a, a digital hearing aid for the planet, has enabled us to tune in to all of these sounds. And what we're uncovering is as profound as the op optics revolution a few hundred years ago. The microscope and telescope opened up whole new worlds. Sonics is doing the same thing. So while you're talking, 
I was thinking about a piano. Now I'm an audio guy and I design oh, stereo. Right. And, and, and so a piano, the, the lowest notes of a piano are about half an octave above the lowest frequencies you can hear. And the highest notes on a piano are two octaves below the max you can hear. So what you're saying is if we went three, four, five octaves to the left of a piano, we would be in the world of elephants and uh, I don't know what other what, what whales, whales, tigers. Yep, um, lots, lots of animals can hear infrasound, and some can make sound. Hippopotami. <laughs> so we might imagine a whale or a hippopotamus pressing a key on a piano that's like way further than almost than you can reach, right? And then on the other extreme, you get into far ultrasonics. Some I don't know how high up the keyboard beyond um, the range at which the opera singer shatters the glass. Yes. Then we're dealing with who and what. So and there you're dealing with moths and mice and bats and some of our primate cousins, like little tiny tarsiers. It may be that human ancestors long ago had the ability to communicate an ultrasound, but we've lost that ability. But some of our distant primate cousins have retained it. So bats, dolphins, uh, toothed cetaceans, of co course, are using ultrasound like echolocation, like an equivalent to an ultrasound machine in a doctor's office, right? To visualize their surroundings. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of ultrasonic activity happening. Now, it, it, this is animals, but I also wanted to mention that plants do make ultrasound very faint. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, the planet itself makes infrasound. So tornadoes, um, elephants can hear thunderstorms from very, very far away that we cannot hear because they can hear the infrasound that the, th the thunderstorms are generating. And that's how they know how to set across this uh, savannah in search of water, which scientists always thought was an uncanny ability. It's the same thing they do to coordinate their movements over very long distances. They're essentially vocalizing at such l powerful low sounds that those sounds travel very, very far, inaudible to us, very audible to not only elephants, but many other species around them. And one of the cool things that all this digital tech is uncovering is not only how those species are talking within themselves, but how other species are eavesdropping on one another and what they're learning and doing as a result. So in order for us to consume the signals that you're capturing with this digital technology, you either have to speed it up so we could hear it, slow it down so we could hear it, or visualize it somehow. Spectrograms. I, I imagine yeah. you're doing all of the above. So what do you take into the field and what does it give you and how do you work with that? Right, so there are two types of science here. Bioacoustics listens to individual organisms Ecoacoustics listens to entire landscapes, which, you know, like a soundscape. So think of a tropical forest, you might hear a river, a waterfall, birds, monkeys, the slither of a snake, all of the, the totality of those sounds is a soundscape. So scientists can, as you said, listen to those. They, if, if we want to listen to them, we can change the, the frequency to put it in our hearing range. We can also train artificial intelligence algorithms to listen and decode the sounds. But ultimately, those are just a digital simulacrum of the real thing. <laughs> we can slow down that 
vocalizations to our hearing range, but we'll never know what a bat sounds like to a bat. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. But that, that is the way that scientists listen, but we can also see those sounds by plotting them on a graph of frequency versus time. And you can basically read that graph a bit like a radiologist would read an MRI or an X-ray. Mm-hmm. A, a trained ecoacoustician can read that graphic of the frequency over time and, and discern many things about the presence or absence of species, health or disease of ecosystems. Entirely new species have been discovered this way because if they're vocally active, but they're hiding, <laughs> you can hear them before you see them. I like to say that um, a camera only captures an animal walking down the forest path, but a, a digital recorder can hear them hiding in the bushes. And of course, all of these technologies are also very minimally invasive. So mm. we can quietly eavesdrop while the animals just go about their business. So we can, we really can learn a lot this way. Wow. So start with elephants. What did uh, our children's storybook never tell us about elephants? You, you gave us a, a little taster just there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So elephants and their ability to communicate in infrasound was discovered several decades ago by a scientist named Katie Payne, who had previously worked on infrasound in whales. So whales and elephants both use infrasound to communicate over these very long distances. And this explains their uncanny ability to travel across miles of open ocean or miles of open savanna and find one another. Scientists used to joke they had some kind of strange telepathy. They may, but in fact, what, what we now know is this infrasonic communication, which we might feel as a vibration or a strange feeling of unease in our chest, but otherwise we can't hear, that's what they're using. So the next generation of research use digital tech to start parsing these sounds. You can record, of course, thousands or millions of vocalizations. You can feed a labeled data set to a, a train, an AI algorithm, and um, what the algorithm will start unpacking is associations between certain sounds and certain behaviors. So scientists, uh, Joyce Poole, for example, in Africa is now building an elephant dictionary. And we know that these sounds have the meanings that we ascribe to them because they're tested in playback experiments. We know what the main call of a female elephant sounds like. They only come into estrus once every four years. The males who are off on their own are very motivated to come find that female very quickly. They're only in estrus for maybe a few days. So you make that sound, these poor male elephants will come running and find a speaker rather than a female elephant, so on and so forth. So that world has expanded. I'll give you one example. Lucy King in East Africa has done some very cool work. So she has demonstrated that elephants have a specific signal for honeybee. Elephants are terrified of honeybees because they can get into their trunks, their ears sting them. So it turns out that the mighty African elephant is only terrified by a few things and the honeybee is the most scary. So you make that honeybee sound that elephants would use to signal alarm to one another and they'll display very specific behaviors that are associated with defensive mechanisms against honeybees. But elephants also make other sounds. For example, they'll make a specific sound to indicate the presence of a a dangerous human, a hunter. And they'll make another sound to describe the presence of another human that is not dangerous, that they've determined is not a hunter. Wow. So elephants are describing us with probably more specificity than a lot of humans could describe them. That is the kind of information that we now have in this elephant dictionary. So a linguist would have to 
categorize this as semantic information. This isn't just a dog bark. This is specific, meaningful communication. It's language. Okay, so lots of researchers who do this would avoid the term language. It's controversial. What they would okay. use is information theory. We can determine with these playback experiments that our hypotheses about elephants communicating ecologically relevant information you know, from sender to receiver, they can discern the signal from the noise. It results in a certain change in behavior on the part of the receiver, right? Okay. Information theory. Yeah. Now, um, now, if most researchers would not use the term language like you did, why? Because there's a big debate that has raged for centuries about language and language is very, defined in very human anthropocentric terms. Language mm -hmm. has to have symbolic abstract symbolic content, these recursive combinations that allow us to share these abstract ideas. And we do not have evidence of this in non-humans. Now, Bob Griffin, who discovered um, that echolocation, was always fond of saying, just because we haven't observed it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There is a reluctance of a lot of researchers to ask these what-if questions. What if whales, for example, did have some form of abstract symbolic communication? And this new generation of digital tech is enabling researchers to ask that question in new ways. There are two projects ongoing right now, for example, trying to decode sperm whale communication, That which sounds a bit like Morse code, sounds like a hammer knocking on the boat hull. So it's quite likely that if we are to find language according to the way we currently define it in any species, it will be in these large-brained, highly social species that we know have intergenerational culture. But we haven't found it yet. And so the debate about language still rages. So I didn't know we were going to go here. There is a fascinating TED Talk by Bonnie Bassler called How Bacteria Talk. Mm -hmm. And she shows, and th this is this this research has been around for many decades. It's not new. Um, that bacteria they send chemical signals to each other, and those chemical signals are effectively words for you and me and us and them. There's a bacterial Esperanto. There's interspecies communication. There's intraspecies communication. And in the cellular realm, it is without question symbolic communication. So does that, does that figure into the conversation that's happening? You're discussing a debate that it sounds like the world is tilted in one direction and it could someday tilt in a different direction. Is, are we talking about uh, like the same conversation or related conversation or how do those two worlds? So it's the same conversation from the perspective of a pretty um, esoteric discipline called biosemiotics. Yeah. Okay. Biosemiotics, biosemiotics asserts that life communicates information through symbols, and they may be biochemical, they may be acoustic, they may be vibrational. Yes. Um, but to a large extent, sci Western science has not looked for these other forms of communication because we st we start with this Cartesian assumption that only humans possess rationality, uh, the ability to communicate in these complex abstract ways. Therefore, we've never looked for it. So the, the heterodox thinkers, uh, whether they're studying bacteria or animals or plants, would assert, let's see. 
let's experiment, let's test, let's design experiments to see whether symbolic communication is occurring. And that is exactly what is now occurring in the field of digital bioacoustics with respect to animals and plants. So we now know, for example, that a larger number of species than we previously ever suspected have individual names, or as scientists call them, vocal signals, because they don't want to call them names, because maybe only humans have names, right? There's such a deep fear in science about being perceived to be projecting human concepts, to be to be sort of falsely projecting human concepts that we invent this complicated jargon. <laughs> but essentially, these vocal signals function as names, and they encode maybe gender or kin or family identity. We only recently discovered that bats have names, for example. Let me give you an example of bats. I think it's a really good one. So we've known for about 100 years that bats echolocate. It's that ultrasound, essentially function, biosonar. However, we've only recently been able to use digital tech to learn about the content of bat vocalizations that are different from echolocation. So imagine going to a bat cave, it's a cacophony, you can't hear a lot of the sound, but our computers can. Researchers might record literally millions of vocalizations, use an AI algorithm to decode patterns, link that, sometimes using these very cool bio loggers to see what the bats are doing when they make the sound. Okay, what do we learn? So I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing the results of hundreds of scientific papers, but essentially, you know, Western culture, which views bats as creatures of the night, zoonotic, you know, disease vectors. So it turns out that bats are highly social creatures with complex communication, a lot more similar to us than we realized. Mm -hmm. Bats hold grudges. They remember favors. They, um, as I mentioned, have individual names that encode gender, kin, and family identity. They socially distance and go quiet when ill. They trade food for sex. Baby bats learn to speak just like you did adults talk to you, you babbled back until you learned the correct signals in the adult's language. Baby bats engage in vocal learning as well. Particular species like the greater sackwing bat will learn specific songs that are representative of their family culture. They're sung by that particular group of bats and they're very important for defining territory. Those are passed down intergenerationally. None of this was accessible to us prior to the advent of these digital recording devices that are now so portable, you can literally put them in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. And the next stage will be AI powered automated real-time playback experiments to start digging deeper. But as we sort of peel back the onion of these non-human communication systems, it's like Von Frisch who won a Nobel prize for his study of honeybee communication called it the magic well. Every time you peel back the onion layer, you see a deeper mystery. And so I am confident that we're going to uncover many more amazing things about the ability of non-human organisms to convey very meaningful information in sound and, and perhaps even find things like oral history. One more thing I wanted to mention to bridge to your point about bacteria, though, is it's not just animals. There's research that demonstrate that plants emit sound. And that sound is audible to uh, at the frequency range um, that insects can hear at. Even creatures with no apparent means of hearing, no ears, can sense sound. A great example is coral larvae. So coral mm -hmm. larvae are microscopic. They have no central nervous system. They're these kind of funny planimals. You know? They're uh, born at the spawning. If you've ever gone diving, these mass spawning events, you're out on the reef, it's amazing. Um, a few days after the full moon, this mass spawning, 
the coral larvae wash out to sea and scientists thought they were just helpless. They were washed around by the wind and waves and currents. Well, it turns out coral larvae can hear the sound of healthy reefs. You can put them in a maze in an aquarium. They will swim towards the sound of a healthy reef. And if given the choice between a random healthy reef and their home reef, their mother reef, they will swim back towards the mother reef. Basically, what they're using is their cilia, the little ears, uh, the little, sorry, the little hairs on the outside of their bodies, which are a lot like the cilia on the inside of your ears that are allowing you to listen to me. Sort of, you know, particle motion in the air, mechanoreception. Somehow those cilia are vibrating in response to the sound of their reef lullaby that they heard when they were born, and they're able to orient and swim back to it. Now, here's the magic well part. We've observed them doing this. We have no idea how. But it does give rise to the speculation that every living organism is sensitive to information encoded in acoustic communication and vibration. It makes sense because biochemicals are very expensive energetically to produce. They're slow. Sound is much faster. It's cheaper in energetic terms. And so you could, we, we, you know, 100 years ago, scientists assumed only a few creatures vocalized in a way that was meaningful and interesting. It may be we have to flip that hypothesis on its head. Maybe every living creature is sort of participating in this symphony. Could this also mean that sounds are being transmitted in our bodies and tissues? Well, that is a curious question, which I do not get into in the book, but I don't mind speculating, but just it is mere speculation. Okay, so certainly we as we know that we can sense infrasound physically. They've done these funny haunted house experiments where you go in and um, some, uh, you know, the control group, there's no infrasound played. But then you do play infrasound for some of the, the poor participants, and that gives them a real feeling of being the house being haunted. So it makes us feel very uneasy. So we must be receiving it, sensing it somehow with our bodies. Beyond that, though, I think your question was different. I think your question was a little bit more at the cellular level of whether there's some sort of vibrational communication of information. Could be, could be. I know there's been some debate about about this. Um, and I'd have to say that I think the question, one question would be scale. You know, what's at what scale are you looking at to see, um, uh, to determine whether there's vibrational information that's being conveyed? And also, I, I think you'd have to understand you're moving away from acoustic communication. I think this would properly be called biotremology, that is vibrational communication. There's a great book by a wonderful researcher called Peggy Hill on biotremology, if people want to know more. So let's say that it's a great hypothesis, but no one that I know of has done this. The closest work is in soil. So it turns out plants and their roots had this really weird ability to attract lots of critters, fungi, worms. Around plant roots, you get these denser associations. So it, as researchers have begun recording the sounds underneath the ground, and one researcher calls it underground Twitter, it's actually quite noisy. So I think if you were to look for it anywhere, probably you'd start with plant roots, mycorrhizal associations, and all of the stuff that's going on there, whereby plants attract fungi and then create these networks, which may be acoustic as well as biochemical. Speculation, but a, a fun thought. Wow. This is just totally fascinating. So how 
did you fall down the rabbit hole? Like something turned you onto this somewhere along the way. Yeah, yeah. So I've spent a few decades working on environmental science issues. That's my training. I am a, a researcher. I myself am not narrowly a bioacoustician. The work, the book, The Sounds of Life, is a work of popular science. It's just, it's a you know a set of stories about the cool scientists doing this work. So I came to this work very, very curious about sounds made by the non-human world, in part because. Some of the work that I had been doing with indigenous communities led me to learn and unlearn some understandings I had about Western science. Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a wonderful Potawatomi biologist, has this great line in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass. She says, I smile when scientists say they discovered X. That's like Columbus saying they discovered America. So it turns out, and in the book, I do spend time really going into these traditions of indigenous knowledge, there's a lot of knowledge there about acoustic communication in nature that Western science had sort of um, shoved aside or developed this very systematic amnesia about. And so I, I, I just began pulling on that thread and started reading one article and then two. And next thing you know, I, I've spent seven years, read several thousand articles. And that's what led to writing the book to share some of those stories but they're not new. They're sort of the stories of Western science rediscovering this long-held knowledge. So perfect segue into there's a story in your book about a indigenous community in, is it Barrow, Alaska? Yeah. Uh, far, far north part of Alaska. And it led me to a book called The Whales They Give Themselves. And you find out that the whale hunting practices by the indigenous people is almost more of a dance between the humans and the whales than it is just a, um, a hunting expedition. And th this was absolutely fascinating. I went and bought the book. It was so fascinating. Can you give, uh, you just barely alluded to going and seeing these native populations and finding out about this knowledge that we have systematic amnesia about. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah. So to begin, I want to acknowledge um, that I'm at not being an indigenous person. There's always a danger in recolonizing this knowledge, uh, but I'm I'm sharing it in the spirit of that story being told in the book, and also some of the wonderful teachings that I've really been lucky to receive from people like John Boros or M. A. Craft, people I've worked with, who begin from the premise that there is a communication that happens between non-humans and humans, and that there are many ways of accessing these sounds, not just technological. So the story of the Inupiat in the farthermost part of Alaska, um, they're on the Bering Strait, which is this amazingly narrow channel between Alaska and Russia, where the Pacific meets the Arctic. It's the site of one of the most incredible migrations in the world as whales move up into the Arctic every year 
incredibly diverse. It's sort of like the savanna. <laughs> you can imagine um, these Pacific upwellings create incredible nutrients. So it's it's not a people might think of the Arctic as a barren place. It's incredibly incredibly rich with life. Yes. So up up there, the Inupiat have developed methods for listening to these sounds, like placing a wooden oar to your jaw, and the vibrations can be heard, and they can discern a lot of information about who is under the water and what they're saying. And so a lot of that learning is intergenerational, and some of those inter relationships are intergenerational because the bowhead whales that the Inupiat hunt live for um, a couple hundred years, and they're well known to the community members because the whales come back every year and the member community members will go out to greet them and hunt them. The story that Harry Brower tells in the book that you're talking about is a story about how these two societies, the Society of Bowhead Whales and the Society of Inupiat, interrelate. There's a mutual recognition that these are two complex societies of creatures which have communication, which have culture, which even have emotions. And that understanding of whales as social creatures governs the hunt. The whales know the humans and only choose to give themselves to the humans if the humans are deserving, if they follow protocol. And the hunters will enter into dialogue with the whales in advance of the hunt, during the hunt, perhaps through dreams, perhaps through other ways. And the whale will not always give itself to the humans. And when it does, it's choosing to do so. So there's you know, there's, it's this amazing understanding of the cycle of life. Hunting is both, you know, very messy and prosaic, but it's also an act of ceremony. It is a, both a sort of a secular and a spiritual act. And I'd really encourage people to go read the book, The Whales They Give Themselves by Henry Brower. But I think what we, what we can take away from this story is that there's a danger to digital tech, which is like eavesdropping. Uh, which is very voyeuristic. We can put our microphones anywhere in the world and 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 and, and listen by a satellite if we want to. But this is a very different relationship than deep listening. Digital listening puts us at a distance. Deep listening, the indigenous way of listening, is embedded in place in relationships between people and certain species that are intergenerational and sort of embedded in a set of protocols and indigenous laws that provide guardrails for these relationships. And I do talk in the book about the fact that this digital tech, interspecies communication, could be misused to further hunt or poach or manipulate species. And I do feel that indigenous knowledge provides a really important sense of guardrails and a framework for using this tech ethically. So how has this informed your sense of how humans should evolve or how technology should evolve or even how you practice your own personal life and your relationships? Like, I, I can't imagine gathering all of this information and fascinating stories, including like if a person carefully listened to what you just said about the relationship between the hunters and the whales, because you chose your words very deliberately, it's astounding. So this couldn't not affect your whole view of how the world works and what it means to be social. Would you have a couple of words to say about how it's shifted your, the way you want to be in the world? 
it's very challenging to ask a scientist to get personal. And it took me many years to sort of unlearn some habits and get over some fears <laughs> to speak in this way. Um, I mean, the work has opened me up to the resonant mystery of nature's sounds and an understanding that there's an enormous amount that we don't know and may never be revealed to us. It's made me aware that it's very important for science to keep asking what if questions with an open mind and not overreact to our fear of being anthropocentric, of projecting human patterns onto other species, not overreact to that by refusing to even consider the hypothesis that other species are essentially non-human persons. They may have the attributes we think of as uniquely human. They, what if they had language? What if they had oral history, intergenerational? What if they had complex culture? We need to start asking those what if questions. So what this led me to do is, is essentially abandon my earlier field of research and devote myself to asking more and more of these what if questions. And this book, The Sounds of Life, is actually the first part of a trilogy that continues the exploration, a rethinking of our understanding of um, the divide between humans and non-humans some of which digital tech can help us unpack, but a lot of which just requires remembering and rediscovering older forms of knowledge that the scientific endeavor has shunted aside or actively suppressed. Now, those words are controversial and, in fact, in an earlier time might have, you know, sparked <laughs> All, all sorts of debates and inquiries. I think we're at a different time today. There's a really interesting opening mm -hmm. in science. There's the work of people like Suzanne Simard or Monica Gagliano. I'd really encourage people to go watch Suzanne Simard's tech talk. What's very, I think, enlivening about the present moment is that science is itself becoming more diverse and more able to ask these questions than it was in the past. I would love for you to explain where the trilogy is going and how all that fits together because i mean i didn't even know there was a trilogy until two minutes before we went live right right and okay so the first book the sounds of life as we've been discussing outlines how digital eco and bioacoustics reveals actually long long understood truths about the universality of complex communication across the tree of life there's a lot of information being exchanged between organisms of all kinds and in fact even um abiotic elements of the planet like the geophony as it were of the sounds being generated by earth itself that sounds mystical but it's not mystical it's science the book cites you know several thousand researchers book one book two takes that forward and asks, what are the political implications? That is, how would we change our environmental governance frameworks? How would we change the way we relate to non-humans now knowing what we know? So that book is called Gaia's Web. Gaia, of course, referring to the, um, the notion of uh, these amazing interrelationships between biotic and abiotic or living and non-living things, James Lovelock, Lynn Margulis. The web, though, being the web of life meets the World Wide Web, essentially as we interconnect non-humans to a lot of our digital tech, it's sort of like the Internet of Things becomes the Internet of Earthlings. And then a lot of new possibilities open up, one of which is the extension of forms of political practice that we associate with humans to non-humans. 
notably the ability of non-humans to participate in environmental regulation. So that book gives practical examples of how digital tech is actually being used to allow non-humans to sort of engage in environmental governance, own property, perhaps even one day exercise political voice in a manner analogous to voting. Mm. Yeah, book two, I know. And again, people listening may think this sounds like science fiction, but my point is we can root each of these innovations in an actually existing digital technology and some experiments that are ongoing today. Now, the third book will reach further out and ask, what is our future of relationships with non-humans in a world where biological and digital innovation are converging and where computation will increasingly occur at, at the level of the cell, certainly within living organisms. And that creates a whole set of new questions about really tenuous distinctions between humans, non-humans and machines, and a whole set of new ethical questions about how we relate to the planet and other beings. And that'll be the third book. Well, this is a very wide ranging interdisciplinary Renaissance thinking project, which is even bigger than I realized before we started talking about today. So this is just fabulous. Well, I want to encourage everybody, The, the Sounds of Life by Karen Baker. Um, you can buy it on Amazon. Is there a place where you would like people to follow you, keep up with you? Yeah, I'm, I'm really not on social media, but people can go check out um, Karen Bucker, my website or the Sounds of Life website. There are lots of examples and ways people can get involved. You can download apps, you can do sound walks, you can do citizen science where you're actually helping scientists label the sounds. You can do live stream of orca sounds, you know, right here from where I'm living, the orca sounds right off the coast here. So I'd encourage people to go to the soundsoflife.org and get connected and start listening. You're going to be really surprised by what you hear. This has been beautiful. I'm really delighted to meet you. And this is a wonderful conversation. And I love the boundaries that you're crossing with your work. So thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0